Welcome to this third in the series of podcasts from Techniques and Co-Proctology. The article that uh, we're using as a basis for our discussion today is in the February issue of the journal and is uh, volume 21, issue 2, and found on pages 93 to 110, and is by Chirocci and colleagues, and is entitled Laparoscopic Lavage versus Surgical Resection for Acute Diverticulitis with Generalised Peritonitis, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis. And it's a contentious uh, subject in Codopatology today, and with me I have David Humes, who is Associate Professor of Surgery at the University of Nottingham in the UK, and is also a holder of the highest prestigious National Institute for Health Research Postdoctoral Fellowship. And David is a internationally recognised expert on uh, diverticular disease, its epidemiology and treatments. I first ask David to give us a bit of background about diverticular disease and its complications. So David, how common is diverticular disease? Uh, so diverticular disease uh, itself is a condition that becomes uh, increasingly common with age. Uh, we estimate that by the time people are 80 years old, 80% of the population will have some evidence of diverticular disease in the Western world. Uh, in terms of the complications of diverticular disease, about 5% of patients go on to develop a specific complication. Mm-hmm. Uh, and those complications typically are either perforation, abscess formation, bleeding, stricture or fistula. Um, the most common complication is that of perforation, which has an overall incidence of about four per 100,000 uh, person years of follow-up in large population-based studies. So it, it is relatively common, uh, about the same, uh, about as common as um, perforated uh, Julian ulcers mm. in uh, the UK at the moment. Okay. And so... Is there, any, is there anything at a prelude for perforation, anything that puts people at risk of there perforation? Are, so the known risk factors for perforation uh, can be broken down into those that are kind of demographic factors, such as an increased BMI. And we think that's because uh, patients with an increased BMI, particularly those with a high um, load of visceral fat, uh, are more likely to secrete inflammatory uh, mediators that predispose them to develop perforation. Mm-hmm. Uh, other risk factors that have been noted are a lack of physical activity, uh, as well as uh, some dietary factors, including uh, eating red meat. Those, the majority of the studies that have shown that uh, have been based from cohorts of working uh, professionals in the US yeah. uh, that have had uh, two yearly um, dietary and physical activity questionnaires, as well as questionnaires given to them for uh, outcomes of diverticular disease. So they're all self-reported endpoints. In terms of other risk factors, we know that there is a, an increased risk of perforation in patients who use corticosteroids, those who use opiate analgesics, and uh, there's some evidence that non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs also increase the risk of perforation. Mm. Uh, studies that have uh, reported those have been either small case control studies, from uh, the, the first of which came from Norfolk, from uh, a group in uh, East Anglia, and then there have been some population-based studies uh, using uh, linked CPRD and HES data from the UK. Mm-hmm. And um, they've shown a, about a threefold increased risk for those with opiate analgesics and a, a twofold increased risk for those using corticosteroids. Is that, is that, are they chronic uses or acute uses? So you can break the use down into those who are currently using and those who are ever users. The current users usually are those within uh, who've had a prescription within six months have a, a, an increased risk compared to those who are ever users, which is what uh-huh. you'd expect. 
The problem with a, a number with some of these studies is that they've uh, missed uh, over-the-counter medications because they rely on prescription medications in routinely collected data. Mm. And then those uh, case control studies, which are uh, using hospital cases, uh, are using self-reported medication use. So obviously there may be a reporting bias associated with that. And also the selection of the controls in those case control studies have often been hospital-based, which means there may be other reasons for them having that medication. Yeah. So bias attributable to that as well. Yeah. So we're going to talk specifically about uh, perforated diverticular disease and the management of it uh, from, from this meta-analysis. Um, but sort of the fundamental part of that is a Hinchy classification. Could you just mm-hmm. run through that for us so, so we're all on the same page? So the Hinchy classification essentially uh, allows you to uh, stage uh, complicated diverticular disease. So Hinchy grade 1 disease is someone who's got a localised paracolonic uh, abscess. Uh, Hinchy grade 2 is someone who's got a walled-off pelvic abscess. Hinchy grade 3 is someone who's got purulent peritonitis. And Hinchy grade 4 is someone who's got faecal peritonitis. So they've got feces coming through the the hole uh, yeah. in the bowel. I think we've all seen all of those, but yeah. uh, just just that's great. Thanks. <coughs> and uh, so forever since uh, Henri Hartmann uh, described the Hartmann's procedure, I think in the nineteen twenties, a French chap wasn't he? Not the same Hartmann that did the fluids. who was an American pediatrician. Um, we, we've been doing the Hartmann's procedure, resecting the affected part and bringing out the yeah. proximal end as a as an end stoma. But lately, there's there's been uh, laparoscopic lavage of this. Can you give us a bit of background to the development of lavage? Yep. So lavage started to be popularised uh, at the kind of end of the 1990s. The first reports of laparoscopic lavage in patients with perforated diverticular disease started to appear. Really came to the fore in 2008 with a publication in the British Journal of Surgery from um, Professor Winter's group in Ireland of the um, use of lavage in a uh, a selected series of patients. Their results seem to uh, suggest that in this group of patients who have known comorbidity and who are elderly, they could uh, manage the patients with lavage and avoid the need for a stoma and control sepsis. So there's quite a lot of interest in the results of, of that series and attempts to try and replicate it. That led to a number of other kind of observational studies reporting their results of use of lavage. Um, which then resulted in a, a systematic review and meta-analysis of those observational studies, which obviously had problems in terms of the selection bias of the patients who entered them and then the uh, varied outcomes that were reported from mm. them. And that's led to uh, the kind of instigation of a number of randomised controlled trials, three of which have now reported and one of which is ongoing. Mm. So do you have any idea how popular lavage is the treatment, say, in the UK? So, so at the moment in the UK, we don't. We're currently doing some research looking at how many patients are treated with lavage using uh, national data. Yeah. Uh, and that, that study is ongoing at the moment. Right. So well, I remember we uh, we did a session together at uh, Association of Chiropractology a couple of years ago and nobody was doing it very much. No. Yeah, I think it's not many people. I don't think it's found. Uh, I think especially with the in light of the results of some of the trials, uh, people have, have started to shy away from it. Okay. Can you just... Talk us through the technique in lavage. So the uh, the techniques vary in the described papers. Um, essentially, the technique has been to perform a, a laparoscopy, uh, try and identify that you have a, a Hinchy stage three disease, so just purulent peritonitis. Trials have varied in their attempts to uh, take down adhesions. Some of the trials have been quite keen to remove all adhesions from the colon. And there may be problems associated with that. 
in that you're disturbing the kind of natural barrier that will, or yeah. the natural healing process that's ongoing. That's trying to identify an underlying uh, hole. Trying to, yeah, trying to yeah. underlying, uh, find an underlying hole that won't won't close with the lavage or, or using just the lavage. And then uh, most people uh, who've reported on this suggest that actually the removal of any extra fluid uh, is more important than the amount of lavage fluid that you use and trials have used between three and six litres of lavage fluid so it's quite a big lavage uh, and then the drain is placed alongside the affected segment of colon mm -hmm. okay um and so now so we've got these 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 two treatments and of course now there's a there's a question of which is which is best and so as you said earlier there's been three trials reported and one ongoing could you just um Run us through those three already reported trials, which are the one that appear in this meta-analysis, and and just sort of tell us some important points, similarities, differences, etc. Okay, so there's a good summary table in the paper a, in Techniques in Neurophotology, isn't it? Summary table. So the Delilah study was the first uh, study to report, and is I think the smallest uh, study to date. Um, and then the uh, Scandiv study was from. Um, Scandinavia, or a variety of Scandinavian countries, and then you've got the ladies trial, which uh, reported results from the lower arm, which is a laparoscopic washout arm of that study, and a second arm, the diva uh, arm of that study, is looking at resection uh, and um, stoma formation, so Hartman's procedure versus a resection and primary anastomosis, mm -hmm. and that's yet to re report. Uh, the um, Lola trial and the um, Delilah trial had less than 100 patients in, in in total, I think. And the Scandiv trial has just over 200 patients, which is the largest mm. uh, to date. The uh, Scandiv trial tried to limit um, selection bias by randomising after laparoscopy. Mm. However, when they reported their overall results, it became apparent that in the patients who didn't take up the trial, those patients had a higher ASA grade and were likely to be sicker. Mm. So it may well be they've selected a, uh, a healthier population into their trial yeah. than they'd intended to do uh, in terms of generalizability. The ladies trial uh, randomized patients after um, they've been identified as having perforated diverticular disease using radiology. Uh, that trial ended or was ended prematurely because of a concern by data monitors that they had a higher re-intervention rate in the laparoscopic lavage and, arm. And that was stopped after about only a third of patients. Yes, so it's, only a small, it's only a small uh, sample of patients. So you have to be very careful when drawing any conclusions from that because it, 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 it didn't get anywhere near the numbers of patients it required to, for its power, for its primary endpoint. So there'll be problems with interpreting those results. Mm -hmm. And then, so yeah. we, we've... So these have been brought together in several meta-analyses now. Yeah. Um, in this meta-analysis, the conclusion is that laparoscopic washout is not inferior, but perhaps there should be some health warnings with that? Yeah, I think at the moment there are a number of unanswered questions from uh, these meta-analyses. As you say, there, is, there, are, there are a number of meta-analyses of these papers and they all conclude slightly different things and have used slightly different endpoints from the studies to get to their conclusion. So the current meta-analysis uh, has looked at complications up to 30 days. Uh, a meta-analysis just published in the Annals of Surgery uses all complications and shows a, a threefold increased risk of re-intervention of any sort uh, in this patient group who have uh, laparoscopic lavage compared mm. to those who have a Hartman's procedure. 
I think there, there are a number of outstanding questions now for this area. One is how do we best select these patients preoperatively? Uh, because a number of, of all of the studies show that there is a, a reasonable percentage of patients, up to 70% in some of the studies, who actually have lavage, who don't have any reintervention and have their sepsis controlled, and then longer term don't have any apparent complications at mm. 12 months. So there may be a group that benefit. Mm. Uh, I think the authors of the uh, Lola trial suggested that we probably need to be able to try and select out patients with fecal peritonitis better, either preoperatively, and they suggested maybe CT scans with rectal contrast in this group of patients to see if there's a leak, which may be excessive and may not be available to everyone. Uh, there's also uh, They also suggested that at the time of laparoscopy, uh, taking down all adhesions and trying to identify holes that won't close. But there are issues we've already discussed mm. about taking down all the adhesions and trying to identify obvious holes that aren't going to aren't going to close. Um, there are also uh, issues with regards to uh, what you do with patients who have had lavage afterwards, because there's a reasonable number of these patients will have a perforated cancer. So in the Scandiv study, they had four patients who had. Uh, a perforated cancer in the lavage group. Mm. So follow-up of these of this group of patients is extremely important. So I think if you're going to use the technique, the patient your patients have to be clear about what it means. Yep. You're trying to avoid a, a stoma for them, but there is a high reintervention rate associated with this. So a third of patients needed some form of intervention. Whether so that's either radiological or, or either radiological or an operation. Yeah. So they have to be aware that that's a, a possibility for them. And, the, and these are frail, often frail elderly are, yeah. patients with comorbidities. <clears throat> yeah, so they may not tolerate these reinterventions particularly uh, well, although mm. none of the studies have shown an increase in mortality uh, in those patients who went on to have reintervention in their intention to treat analysis. Mm. Mm. So uh, basically, it's it's having a stoma versus risk of complication and perhaps death with lavage. So, well, what do you do? So I tend, I tend to uh, resect these patients. Yeah. So uh, often the patients that I come across in my practice are elderly, have multiple comorbidities, and actually it would find it difficult to comprehend the risks that I was trying to explain to them in terms of the need for re-intervention and actually want a definitive procedure. You have to remember as well that the majority of these patients, even looking at the results in the trial, there's a high mortality associated with this patient group at 12 months, mm. and that's not due to the surgical intervention. That's due to their underlying comorbidity yeah. and underlying performance status. So in population-based studies, up to 20% of these patients die by one year. Yeah. So they're a group of patients who need, I think, a definitive procedure to get them back out of hospital. And you have to accept that those patients who then do have a stoma... Uh, population-based studies show us that only 50% of those patients will go on to have that stoma reversed. But again, that's more a factor of uh, the patients themselves, so patient choice, and then their underlying comorbidity and age, and their ability to tolerate a leak if they were reversed. And we know that this group of patients, when you're reversing Hartman's procedures, they have a leak rate of 10 to 15%. Yeah. So that's significantly higher than we would see in a cancer resection. Yeah or we tolerate because you have abnormal bowel, it's diseased, and you have a group, the patient group themselves are highly comorbid yeah. and more prone to a leak. So they are and there's very people that don't tolerate a leak. You know, so exactly. you, the overall mortality is about 40%. Yeah. In these, it would be 
Yes, so these group. are these, and that's in the, so the the high stoma rate and the high permanent stoma rate has to be uh, set in the context of those factors, mm. not just that people aren't reversing these people. There are there are reasons why you might not reverse these mm. patients, yeah. and a lot of the patients actually, once they've been through this type of procedure uh, and had the the difficult time that they have with their Hartman's procedure, they don't want to have another operation. Mm. So they'll say to you in clinic. I don't really fancy yeah. having anything else done. And stomas are quite manageable, aren't they? These yeah, things, yeah, most they people, are. Most people get on well with them. So you did you did say earlier that there is a, there is a perhaps a you know we, we might over treat a certain group of of people and perhaps they could benefit from Lavage. Do you see actually being able to identify those people in clinical practice with confidence? Well, I think so. <clears throat> it'll be interesting. Uh, the last study to report in this area, which is our Lapland study, has a, a sample size of over three hundred. And that might be able to address some of the issues that we've seen so far if they can recruit fully. Uh, in that it, it might give us a, it might allow us to have a, a look at which patients with uh, Hinchy grade three benefited, mm. or whether there are any predictive factors of um, failure and need for intervention within those patient groups. But that will be dependent on uh, increasing the number of patients who've actually undergone this procedure within trials who are mm. well characterised, and then we might be able to combine data to see if there are groups who may benefit. Mm. Okay, um, David Humes, thank you very much for talking to us. Thank you.